Welcome to Nordic by Nature, a podcast on ecology today, inspired by the Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, who coined the term deep ecology. Ness used the term self-realization to indicate a kind of imagined perfection, a process and a goal for both the individual and community. This podcast on inner resilience combines Ness's idea of self-realization with a view of human equilibrium, but it should only be used if it includes a sense of inner joy and benevolence to the world. Inner resilience can be defined by a number of characteristics. For example, number one, inner resilience is meaningful and desirable, but it can sometimes be painful. It is not synonymous with comfort. It is a process of maturity where a person acts more consistently from themselves as a whole. Number two. Inner resilience is a continuous process. It can be achieved through knowledge and learning, but it demands a consistent practice that includes the cultivating, communicating and sharing of compassionate values. Number three. Inner resilience evolves new types of skills that are needed for transformation, including empathy, respect, humility, consensus building, and co-creation. Number four, we are constantly changing and cannot be separated from the planetary processes that we are part of. Our own health and well-being cannot exist at the expense of others nor the biological or cultural diversity that is the nature of all life. Ajay Rastogi will begin by introducing a secular, nature-centered mindfulness practice that is really easy to learn and that he developed and teaches at the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature in the Himalayan village of Mashkali in Uttarakhand, India. If you've never meditated before, I can really recommend trying this version of mindfulness. The idea is not to clear your mind, but simply relax and observe. Then you will hear the words of Noor A. Noor, an Egyptian conservationist at the University of Cambridge in the UK, who describes his own personal path into conservation and mindfulness. Through his family, through music, and through the traumatic experiences of the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. We will then hear Judith Schleicher, Judith explains how daily meditation has helped her with her conservation work ever since she attended a 10-day Vipassana course. Lastly, we meet Christoph Eberhardt, legal anthropologist and practitioner of the Chinese and Indian traditional arts, Tai Chi Chuan, Qigong and Yoga. Christoph believes that dialogue is at the heart of meaningful transformation, dialogue with oneself, with others, with nature and the beyond.
Hi, my name is Ajay Rastogi and we live in the village of Pachkhali. It's in the state of Uttarakhand in the Indian Himalayan region. And uh, it's about 400 kilometers north of Delhi and we overlook the high Himalayas, uh, many 6,000 meters high peaks from where we are. I have been an ecologist and an environmentalist for a large part of my life. The fact that we are unable to make big changes in the society which are needed for sustainability required that we also relook at the approach that we have taken so far. So for that reason, I was thinking what can be more transformative than a meditative practice which can be done in nature. Meditation is being considered as the methodology for inner transformation. The contemplation of nature is done in a natural surrounding. It's a multi-sensory experience. It helps because we are a biological organism. Therefore, we have an inherent drive to connect with nature. We are genetically wired. It is not that abstract as many people find many other meditative practices to be. So it is a good beginning. But meditation in nature, contemplation of nature, is definitely an approach which can be done on a daily basis and it leads to that level of tranquility and gives us the benefits of the meditation, the compassion, the kindness and the deeper connection to the natural world as well as to the social community around us. That at about 23rd minute, a tranquility factor causes deeper trigger of physiological relaxation which brings the body and the internal chemistry in a much more regulatory and balanced way. That's called the relaxation response. And that's what we are trying to achieve also at the physiological level besides the psychic and other benefits that the meditation will bring. One may not have access to such landscapes, so it can be done indoors and it can be done with very simple objects of nature. Then following the three steps of nature contemplation that we have designed. So the three steps, simple three steps is observe nature with a soft gaze, accept with gentle detachment and send love with sympathetic attention. observe nature with a soft gaze, we accept with a gentle detachment, remaining not interested in finding details. Of course, the mind would wander here and there, but as soon as we realize that we have gone further and drifted, we can come back to observe nature with a soft gaze. One additional 
element which is a very important element of nature contemplation practice is to let go and this happens by just as we sit down and begin our contemplation we send love with sympathetic attention we just remind ourselves of with the gratitude the feeling of gratitude and then we sit observe softly with a gaze and continue a gentle detachment the let go is not to make any judgment about where we are what are we doing and this is a step which is a transcendental in nature therefore it's a f- fundamental aspect of the practice that we are able to somehow transcend this call of judgment and thinking mind at least for a little while My name is Noor Noor, a 28-year-old Egyptian doing a master's in conservation leadership. Before coming to Cambridge, I spent the last seven years managing Nature Conservation Egypt, which is an NGO working on the conservation of habitats, species, and local communities. Growing up, I was a child of the city. My parents were very active for social justice and for political rights and economic rights. However, they didn't take me much into nature. It wasn't part of my upbringing. 2011, Egypt saw one of its most incredible yet traumatic uprisings where hundreds of thousands of Egyptians went to the street to call for bread, freedom and social justice. obviously everything that stems from those three components as a result significant changes came about some of them were for the better but lots of them were for the worse we were met with huge violence from the people that were in charge at the time specifically the armed forces there was constant conflict between protesters that are calling for a complete transition to a more democratic human rights oriented government as a result there was heavy persecution and egyptians still remain heavily persecuted by the state throughout 2011 myself as well as hundreds of thousands of other egyptians who were taking part in these demonstrations had to run for their lives more than enough times to realize that Life isn't really as it seems once you've actually had to run for your life. And and lots of people including myself had had faced uh, uh, near death scenarios and situations as a result of this constant preparation to sacrifice. I had went from always being prepared to sacrifice myself for the cause to realizing that I am actually more useful. if i try to survive 
And part of that realization came by spending time in nature for the first time. For the first time, I was spending a significant amount of time in nature and learning about nature and conserving nature as a part of my new jobs that I had assumed in 2012. By understanding nature more, I ended up understanding myself more. Bit by bit, I ended up encountering mindfulness, which at the beginning I hated as a term because I, I felt it was very counterintuitive. Uh, and and the more I, I read up into mindfulness, the more it really resonated on a theoretical level, on a political level, and on a personal level. By spending time in nature, by understanding how it works, by letting oneself be inspired and be healed by nature, that that in itself is a mindful process. <laughs> Essentially, one had encountered so much physical and emotional trauma in that one year, whether inflicted upon myself or, or even worse, seeing it inflicted on those that I cared about or even those that I did not know, but we shared a common political ground. The, the accumulated traumas from that still are carried by myself as well as thousands of others to this day. There's no romanticization of revolution. There's no romanticization of conflict and uprising because there's a lot of sacrifice. But I am absolutely grateful because of how I ended up having to respond to these traumas on a physical, emotional level of how can I be mindful to reduce my anxiety, but, but even politically, how to better address the political traumas, how to better see how we can be more mindful holistically as a planet to get through the inevitable crises that we are facing and will continue to face at an exponential rate uh, in the future. After the 2011 uprisings, I was adamant on working in the field, and I ended up getting a job managing an NGO working in nature conservation, as well as educational environmental tourism. It's a company called Daima. It made me aware of certain dimensions relating to our survival, to relating to sustainability, relating to the battles that we are trying to fight for justice. And through the uprisings in 2011, I realized the importance of nature and of the natural resources that we depend on. What many people are realizing now is that all political and economic and even social dynamics relating to us humans as a species are directly or indirectly related to our relationship with surrounding nature.
the fact that we continue to separate ourselves from the things that keep us alive, starting from our food all the way to even the air that we breathe and the oxygen that comes from other living beings and other habitats on this planet, is at the heart of the existing conflict over resources, as well as the trajectory that we're taking towards the collapse of the systems that support us. Political ecology is, is a term that is excellent in encompassing this. It says that whenever we look at nature and its resources, we need to think about the political, social, and economic structures that govern nature. We need to think about the ecological processes that support the, the social processes. To be honest, we're all implicated. The phone that I'm using now to speak with you about sustainability, the components that were used to make this phone are not sustainable. Coffee that I am sipping on at the moment, it's supposed to be ethically sourced, but in the end, it's probably come from somewhere very far away. That in itself is an essential part of consumer culture that makes it more difficult for us to be mindful of the things we're eating and the things we're drinking because we've become so dependent on these things. Back when I was 15, when, when my father was imprisoned by the Mubarak regime, or the, the regime that was in power in Egypt for 30 years, my father was sentenced to four or five years in prison in, in response to his political mobilization at the time in opposition to the president. And at that time, I remember specifically telling myself things like, all right, you have a minute to feel whatever you want to feel. And then as soon as that minute's done, switch it off. And to be able to just continue to function. Ten years later, when I found myself acknowledging my anxiety for the first time, I realized that I've been breathing wrong my entire life. <laughs> and, and it's such a fascinating realization because technically you know, we're not taught how to breathe when we're kids. No one tells you to breathe through your stomach when you're a child. In my last year of university, I was studying political science and law. And in my last year, I got involved in a music project that made music out of garbage. So recycling and upcycling waste to make music and to raise environmental and social awareness using music as a means. That music project, through one of the concerts that I had organized, introduced me to the people that I ended up working with for the years to come.
I'm Judith Schleicher. I'm a postdoc in the geography department here in the University of Cambridge. And I also work together currently as a consultant with UN Environment World Conservation Monitoring Centre. I've always really been interested in tropical forests, the diversity, the people who live there, the cultural diversity, biodiversity, everything, and trying to protect that and also understanding people and the relationship with them better. When I was doing my PhD, I started meditating a lot. And then when there was opportunity to work on the relationship between nature and people, after my PhD, that just seemed to bring all these things together. From this location, what we can see is concrete and a parking lot. Uh, and, you know, if that's the environment people grow up in, we even get less connected with nature. I think that not only has a very negative impact on our personal development and our personal growth and our society, but it also means that in the future we might care even less about what we have left. I think what is particularly important is that we also look inwards. We need to think about ourselves, our own well-being, and work on making the changes from within. And then we can make changes beyond that. And so I think those are the kind of things that really need to be part of our education system, how we grow up. What are the things that really matter in our lives? Children spend so much time in schools being taught so many things that are just involving our intellect in terms of thinking about it. But they don't really think about how do we build emotional resilience? How do we think about our well-being? How do we think about our own mindset? Really taking care of that is so important. And if we could make that part, a fundamental part of a person's life when they grow up, from when they grow up, I, I think that would be a huge positive change. I would love to see, for example, mindfulness and meditation being part of the normal school curriculum. And then people start thinking about what is it that matters in my life and what are the things that are important. We really internalize all of, the, all of those things and then we can also have the discussion at a much broader scale, as a community scale, at a society scale, at a national scale of what are the things that we want to, which is the direction we want to go into, but it really has to start at a, at a personal level also. Many people are not familiar with it and they don't really know what it means. They might associate, for example, Buddhism with it. They have religious connotations when it doesn't have to. It can be secular and nothing to do with, with religion. Spiritual doesn't mean that you have to believe in one specific religion. It can be really challenging to work in conservation because you're always fighting an uphill battle. Basically, you're always confronted with bad news and also the way often we talk about it is in a very negative way. I was in Peru for my field work and lots of things were going wrong. And then my friend said, who's been meditating for a very long time, she started when she was a teenager, and she said, oh, there's this meditation course, 10-day silent course coming up in, in Lima, where you are. It's like, why didn't you just do it? And I was like, sure, I'd never thought about what meditation is or anything. So I was like, sure. And then I, one day I signed up, I was like, why would I do that?
I just did this 10-day course without knowing anything about it. I didn't know what meditation was. I had no idea what I would get myself into. It was an amazing experience, life-changing. I mean, in a 10-day course, you go through so many things and ups and downs. But every minute you put into it, it's worth it. But I had so many positives, but the strongest one was definitely this a sense of inner peace that I've never felt in that way before. Not only just knowing, but really feeling that happiness or contentment has nothing to do with anything external. And of course, that's things that we might intellectually know, but really feeling it is a very different thing than experiencing it. You know, of course, there is always daily struggles of internalizing it, but that will continue. But knowing that is a very big gift to experience. I've done a few um, of these courses, and every time at the end, it's just so nice when you haven't talked for a while, for 10 days. It's, your mind is just so focused and so clear, and you realize how we are impacted by all this chatter and oh, so much information being fed into our brain all the time you really realize what the impact is. As soon as you start talking, your mind just goes crazy. One very important first step is awareness. So, you know, when you're saying that you feel you become more sensitive, but maybe you've just become aware of something that was always there. It's just that before you weren't aware of it. So that means you couldn't look after your body in the way that it needed attention. Maybe otherwise, you know, it would have just, the same processes might have gone on, it's just that you wouldn't have been aware of the impact it had on you. I mean, I can totally connect with what you said about nature providing that space where you can develop all of these things. Many of the things that I experienced through meditation, I've, I guess they just came naturally in, the, in nature before. If, you, if I sit in a forest, which is the environment I love, I feel never alone. I can feel alone being surrounded by lots of people or being in, in a non-natural environment, but I will not feel alone if I'm just in a forest and just being. Whereas in our society, we always told we have to be productive, we have to be doing, we have to be doing things. It's much more healthy to move away from that at least sometime and just be, be it with nature, be it with other people. And that is what ultimately creates uh, contentment and happiness from within and nature provides the natural space for doing that your mind just yeah is just in the moment the meditation course where I was uh, I was helping over the years so I was in the kitchen we were cooking for 130 140 people which is it can be very demanding because you know cooking for so many people in very strict time slots is probably a, what many people would call a stressful environment with people I've never worked together with. But they were all meditators and they're all aware or at least much more conscious about these things. And it was not only it worked really well, it was also good fun and we were a great teamwork. So if I could translate that into my day-to-day -day world everywhere, it would be amazing. I started meditation seven years ago. I meditate daily, at least one hour a day, sometimes more. I mean, it makes a huge difference to my day-to-day -day life. And it's also made a huge difference of how I probably think about conservation. 
before I started meditating, all that gloom and doom rhetoric sometimes can be really disempowering and make you feel just really difficult to think that you can really make a positive change and what if you don't? So that is very difficult sometimes to grasp. With meditation, I also had a sense that, just in a deeper sense of, I guess, peacefulness, that, you know, it will be fine eventually and nature will be able to cope. Whether humans will be able to cope, that's a different question. I guess, yes, it made me more peaceful from within that I can do whatever I can in my possibilities to fight for a more just and more environmentally sustainable world but I can be fine with whatever happens. I'm Christoph Eberhardt. I'm Austrian. Now I'm based in the south of France, in Arcachon. To put it in a nutshell, like my whole life has been devoted to, um, I would say, a quest for peace, for harmony, a living harmony. So it manifested on the one hand in, let's say, more social sciences. So I had a little career as a a legal anthropologist between law and social sciences, trying to see how we could live together in a more dialogical way, understanding each other a little better and harmonizing each other a bit better. And then a second aspect was like dialogue with some more inner dialogue and with nature. And that especially expressed itself in uh, my interest for the traditional arts, especially like the Chinese internal arts and um, Indian arts like yoga. For me, like this inner resilience would be in this question of dialogue. Dialogue is listening, but it's not only listening with your ears, it's listening with your heart. And even more than that, it's listening with your soul. We can experience it in our very, very day-to-day experiences. Just like taking some time, not starting to speak immediately, taking five minutes or ten minutes just to harmonize, 
before doing something. Just letting the mind settle, being rooted in a certain way. Sometimes people don't want to do it, say they don't have time to do it. But actually just this sitting quietly, calmly, in a certain way completely changes the, the, the whole atmosphere. And if you do it, you will find that people are much, much more open to, to real dialogues, to listening to each other, to really sharing the, their experiences, than if you do it without that quiet time at the beginning. So you start to dialogue with another human being. Really dialogue in the sense that you really want to listen to the other person and you, you let yourself be challenged by maybe the worldview that he presents or the um, sensitivity that he's expressing. Well, it may on the one hand be enriching, but sometimes it may be very shocking. You know, we, we may not really want to hear certain things or we do not really hear, hear certain things until we have heard them like a hundred times. You know, and then suddenly you're like, oh, wow, there was something deeper than I, than I thought. But so when this happens, it's, it's a kind of a inner challenge also. That leads to a second kind of dialogue, which is the dialogue with, which I call with oneself. We start to become aware of what our, let's call it invisible horizon of action and uh, living is. And for that, actually, we need the dialogue with others, because otherwise we can never become aware of our own personal window. And then when you start to deepen this dialogue with others and, uh, and yourself, by listening more to yourself, you also start to realize that actually you're connected to the nature all around you. That in a certain way, once the sensitivity to listening has been opened up, well, you start to listen to the trees, to the sun, to the, to the flowers, to the, to the clouds. In a certain way, they talk to you. If you want to listen, first you have to empty yourself. And then everything comes and talks to you. The dialogical aspect of nature also starts to unfold. So it's dialogue with oneself, with the others, with the um, nature. And then there's this other dimension which I call like beyond, whatever you want to call it. This thing which are beyond words, you cannot really express it, but which is, which is also there. Sometimes when we talk about inner, we kind of separate it or distinguish it from outer. For me, I would rather say that the experience of also entering in yourself or entering dialogue with others or entering dialogue uh, with nature or with what is beyond is more a process of creating links where there was no links. You may have had an idea of or a feeling of separation. You know, you're feeling separate from the others and you're feeling separate from nature. Nature is more objects which are outside, you know, but it's like a world of objects. It's not a living reality. Even some people just see them like objects, you know, some robots which are there, you know, which behave in a certain way, but they're not really persons that we interact with. And same thing with ourselves, you know, we may even ourselves not really, we do our work, we do our things, we're in our routines. But are we really considering ourselves as another living subject as such? There's four dimensions. And you can start from any of these dimensions. If you're somebody who has been growing up in a very natural surrounding, maybe your first dialogue starts with nature. Some people, they're shepherds and they spend lots of time alone for months, you know, in the mountains. So probably for them, the first kind of dialogue which would start is more like a dialogue with nature and, and then the other dialogues may come for people like me I'm more like a city person and uh, so it's you're more confronted with people at the beginning you know but 
the important point is to say that for me all these the dimensions are always there at the moment when we start to open one of these dimensions dialogue of one of these dimensions little by little we start to realize how everything is much 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 more linked together than we ever expected life is not a void to be filled it is a plenitude to be discovered the other is not a void to be filled it's a plenitude to be discovered it's not just it's always easy to go somewhere and say oh they don't have this they don't have that they don't have that they don't have that and just construct them like as a inferior version of of yourself but they can could do the same thing because from their point of view you don't have this and don't have that and don't have that and so on wouldn't it be more interesting instead of trying to fill the other with your own projections and your own ideas to just listen open up and then maybe discover all the plenitude that the other is i just started to realize that our lives generally speaking are sometimes very often a, a void to be filled you know we we feel that we have to have a certain social status and we feel that we have to Uh, on a psychological level we want to achieve certain things on the economical level on the many levels you know we we want to fill which is wonderful uh, as long as it is not something we just do because we need to fill our lives and at the moment that we dare to maybe step back a little we may just find out that life is actually very rich and all these things may be happening without us trying to push too hard Plenitude means you start to realize all the relationships that you you are knotting together through your being. Just like we have a physical body, considering like a modern Western science, we are actually really children of the stars. I mean, that is all the elements that we are made of are made in the in in the stars. So we have actually a relationship with them. So we have this physiological level but then we have our emotions we have our feelings we have our thoughts and all these different dimensions are all interlinked by the contemplation of outside nature which we perceive as being outside we actually establish a relationship which on the outside level may lead us to this feeling that we that we should not care for the environment because it's our duty but because of its beauty so we establish like a relationship with the outside nature but at the same time contemplating the outside nature also actually refers us back to our inside nature we you can use the term ecological but i would just say our our inner nature what life is about <laughs> you are part of nature when i say nature you know there's nature and nature there's the visible nature that we see and then there's nature in the sense of let's call of what is the whole planet and the solar system and the galaxies and the, now they're talking even of these multiverses it's really links creating links links where we didn't see links where there was separation little by little to realize that things are linked little by little you start to see that things are so much linked that which is very important in the ecological thinking you start to enter into these more holistic approaches to things because you realize you cannot just cut things into pieces they're always related and whenever you change something somewhere always has an effect on the on the whole if you start practicing any qigong if you start practicing any movement which you will do with a relaxed body tasting what you're doing maybe doing it slowly and doing it with awareness 
little by little what you will start to feel is what Chinese often call qi, which is energy. Again, which is experiential. So the one feeling that you may have at the beginning is you will feel your little tingling in the fingers or you, you may feel some warmth that will come. And then if you continue at some point, you may feel it more inside, you know, the, 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 the kind of a magnetic feeling. Sometimes it gets a more like electric feel to it. Just the quiet sitting you know, like and, and watching your breath. Actually, even if you only do this, but like you do it, uh, you do it every day and you do it for a couple of hours every day and so on and so on. At the beginning, you're very much in the psychological state. You're just thinking of this and thinking of that. And uh, and then at the moment when these things start to settle a little, you know, like a glass, water and mixed and then chocolate settles, you know, and becomes more clear and uh, more transparent. When that stage starts to happen, things start to circulate in your body. That's like basically what is the, the, the whole chi. These things are very real. So that brings me to the, your reaction to the experience. The culture we live in, now I'm talking more like city culture, you know, like um, technological society. It blunts us to lots of our experiences. If you live in nature and you have to live and survive in nature, your senses are much, much more refined than the kind of senses that we may have, like in the, living in, in, in the cities. So in a certain way, we again, we colonized our minds. And even now, I still realize how much my mind is colonized. Very, very um, big learning process also. Because you start to realize, I do have an innate intelligence. My body does understand certain things. Okay, you have to put the awareness. It's not, you don't have to do anything. You have to put the awareness. You have to try to listen. You have to practice. It's not just coming like if you don't do anything. And also, you know, little by little to learn to make the difference between what is your illusions and your and, and what things are real in those what you feel. We are not gods. We are not like um, uh, the masters of nature or, or, or kings of nature. No, no, we are part of it. We're just a very humble, tiny little part of it. Humility, the importance of humility. You recognize yourself as a wonder of the universe. It's, it's, it's amazing. And the more humble you become at the same time, in a certain way, the more beautiful the whole thing becomes. Thank you for listening. Nordic by Nature podcast is created with the support of the Nordic Ministries. Please help us by sharing a link to this episode with the hashtag Traces of North and follow us on Instagram at Nordic by Nature podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our podcast, so please email me, Tanya, on nordicbynaturepodcast at gmail.com. 
We are also on Patreon if you would like to support us with a donation to keep this podcast going into a second series next year. Please see patreon.com slash nordicbynature. If you are interested in learning more about nature-centered mindfulness and resilient thinking, please read about R.J. Rastogi's village homestay retreats on foundnature.org and follow the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature on Facebook and the Contemplation of Nature on Instagram. Noor A. Noor worked for Nature Conservation Egypt. Please see natureegypt.org. You can follow Noor on Twitter at NXOOR. You can follow Judith Schleicher on Twitter at J underscore S-C-H-L-E-I-C-H-E-R. You can find Christoph Eberhardt through his YouTube channel Dialogues for Change or Twitter at Peace Dialogues. Sound is designed by Diego Losa. See diegolosa.blogspot.com.